constantly worried about whether our sins are more than our, our righteousness and our goodness. And, and none of that matters. Right? None of that makes any difference at all. There is, there's, there's only wasted effort trying to prop up and trying to primp and, and polish this, this flesh of ours. It's worthless. It is not possible to make yourself good enough to be for, to be for heaven. Now that you're saved, though, there are some things you do need to do because you don't carry just one of you anymore. What did God put in you when you got born again? Somebody raise your hand. He put the Holy Spirit in you, and he calls that Holy Spirit, the work of the Holy Spirit, he made a new man in you, gave you a new birth. Now, the old you still looks the same, okay? Ought to have a smile on you. But um, I think it was Laven, uh, um, Leonard Ravenhill who said that if if salvation didn't put any joy in your heart and in your life, then you didn't get saved. So I believe in there being outwardly a smile, but you're still the old you. And there are there is baggage you carry throughout the rest of your Christian life that you need to deal with. And that's called putting off and putting on. And by the way, you'll be doing that till the day you die. Okay? Salvations, how often do you need to get saved? Somebody raise your hand and tell me. Once, amen. So, uh, but how often do you have to put off the flesh and deal with bad habits? How long will you have to deal with that? Constantly, till death. So, now that you're saved, let's talk about what we ought to be working on. So, Paul, going through the book of Colossians, he's continuing to write his letter here, and I can't, I can't, um, uh, um, I can't convey to you what I can see in my mind's eye, but I, I try to imagine him uh, either in prison or on in house arrest or in some state of trouble writing these words. And you never hear him complaining. You never hear him saying, oh, by the way, pity me. He was really burdened about these Christians and he wanted them to mature. He wanted them to be strong. He wanted them not to be defeated by life and by the world around them. Because believe me, I believe it is very easy to be a Christian today. Not that it's, not that it's easy, but it's easier today than ever because we have so much freedom and you have so much ability to, to, to actually live for God today. Back then, you lost your family, you lost your job, you, uh, you were on your own when you became a Christian. You, uh, you were hunted, you were, um, I don't know. It was, there was no real uh, strong legal system, so it was easy to kill a Christian. Matter of fact, it's going to get that way again, by the way. But uh, Paul, um, instead of telling them to constantly be looking down and being disappointed about how rough politics were and how, how oppressed they were, he says, be strong. And this is what you need to do now that you're saved to be strong. All right. So he writes... This book to stabilize the Colossian believers in the truth that Christ is all they will ever need. They don't need a new emperor. They don't need a new law on the books, even though those would be wonderful. But all that they need is in Christ. Uh, and they are themselves, as flawed as they are, as, 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 um, worthless as any of us could ever amount to be, we are complete in Christ. He's all we need in us and in Christ, I am all I need to be. It is just breathtaking how God took care of all the details. 
So, now that's all there so that we can live in victory over how many sins? Now, I'm telling you, any sin. Now, you don't believe that because as soon as the devil comes along, your flesh says, oh, I give up. <laughs> but a Christian can have victory. Does that mean that they will never sin again? No. As long as you're breathing, you are always going to be not only tempted to sin, but deceived into sinning. The devil's a liar. And so don't don't get this idea, well, if I just resist. No, you're not going to resist enough. You're not going to be good enough. You're not going to be strong enough. But you can live in victory so that you don't live in it, so that it doesn't have dominion over you, so that it doesn't run your life. So it's time to start mortifying all the old sins that still reside in you. And that's what he's talking about here in chapter 3. And simply, I'm just going to tell you and remind you what I said uh, was it last week or two weeks ago, that God, you have to believe that God has unplugged every one of the sins that used to beset you. So, uh, let's go to Colossians chapter 3. Let's read 3, verse 5. <clears throat> well, let me go back in verse 1, and uh, just throw 1 to 5 here. Colossians chapter 3. If ye then be risen with Christ. That's what we preached on this morning, amen? He's alive, isn't he? You know, if you believe on him, so are you. And just as impossible as it was for Jesus Christ to get out of that tomb, it was also just as impossible for you to get out of your sin. And yet he got up, and by your faith, he resurrected you. So if you are risen with Christ, if you're born again, we would say, if you've got this new life in Christ, then you need to seek the things now which are where? Above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Uh, set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth. For ye are dead now, and your life is hid with Christ in God. Now when Christ, who is our life, shall appear, then shall ye appear also, ye also appear with him in glory. You're coming back with him. Verse five. Verse five says these very simple words, mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth. And then he lists them. He says fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he says for us to mortify our earthly members. Now mortify is a wonderful word. It sounds terrible but it's absolutely a wonderful word. It simply means to put something to death, to render lifeless, to allow something to decay or die, to starve by not feeding, to deny any authority over your life. To mortify is to leave it so it dies. Now, go to Luke chapter 9, verse 20. I won't, no, no, no. Uh, we already did this last week. I've got a race because I've got some very important stuff to tell you. I did this. If you want to know all the details, Get the, I was going to say get the tape, but get the recording from two weeks ago. Nobody has tapes anymore. To mortify goes on, okay? And I'm just condensing and boiling this down very simple. It means to condemn, judge, and divorce sinful desires from accessing authority over your life. When you mortify a, 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 a sinful habit, it is you verbally and, and emphatically condemning it. You already feel condemned. You already know you're doing wrong. But it's when you condemn it as something that has to die and you say, it cannot have authority over my life. Now, um, when we talk about the word crucify, we know that means to put to death, right? Because that's what crucifixion does. But mortifying is the next step beyond just putting something to death. It's bigger than that. It means to believe that something is dead. Do you remember that? And now to walk away from it, being now free from it since it is dead. And I gave you the illustration of a... I didn't have this last time, but of a bear rug. Now, 
Uh, only in America would you walk into a house and see this bear looking at you on the ground there, but he's dead. All right, so can you imagine? If you're looking at that thing in the daytime, would you be afraid of that? Remember? No. And I gave you the illustration. At night, however, if you're, if you're going downstairs, you're going to get that last piece of chocolate cake out of the fridge without your wife knowing. And you sneak down the stairs, and you're going to get a cup or a glass of milk and that last piece of chocolate cake, and you hop down there, and you look over and you glance, and when you've got that fridge light open there, uh, and it happens to reflect on the eyes of that bear, and for a brief moment, it terrifies you, and you think that it's alive. And the most important thing for you to do at that moment, when it looks alive, is you remember, it's dead. Do you understand what I'm saying? It's dead. It does not have power. Now, if it was alive, it would have terrifying power. But mortify means to believe that it's dead. That's all it means. So, if you ever, if you ever have the unfortunate prospect of actually visiting a morgue, not actually going there and being put there, but actually visiting what's inside all of those compartments. Somebody raise your hand and tell me. Dead bodies. So mortuary, a morgue, is a place where you put dead things. And that's what Paul is saying. Take that habit, take that sin that so easily besets you, that so easily pulls you down, that defeats you. Take that and put it where dead things go. Put it in, in a in a mortuary in your life where you say, this doesn't belong, it's going there before it's actually buried. It is going to the mortuary. Now, <clears throat> we are told to mortify our members. Now, uh, somebody raise a member of your body. Somebody raise a member. Okay, good, you did it. <laughs> Some of you got that. That's <clears throat> Now, if I'm going to put that thing away, I'm going to lose it, all right? So Paul makes sure when he describes, he doesn't say cut off your index finger, your ring finger, your thumb, your toes. No, he's not saying to kill those things and to believe they're dead. But he's talking about the members that are that, that make up my flesh. Talking about everything about me. Your members are what make up your flesh. That includes your physical muscles, chemicals, bones, fingers, ears, eye, feet, and all other parts. All together, those are your members. Okay, now, uh, every part of me is a, is a member of my body, but they're not all just physical. Some of them are chemical, some of them are emotional. And uh, all of those things, I need to, in my mind, realize they don't have authority over me anymore. Who has authority over my life now? Somebody tell me. Don't tell me my wife. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Remember the, the guy who was asked to come to the feast, uh, the, the wedding feast, uh, and uh, he said, I cannot come for I'm married. <laughs> he, he had an authority above him that was not a, the Lord Jesus Christ. But who has authority over me is not my body anymore. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. And what do I do when my body argues with God? I put off my body. That's what fasting is. Fasting is you deciding I'm going to learn to ignore my body. I'm going to test out this theory of mortifying my flesh. I'm going to keep going. I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep uh, studying, even though my body's screaming, feed me. You understand what I'm saying? Fasting is a taste of you putting up a fight against the flesh being in charge. Is it easy to fast? Somebody tell me. 
How many of you find it easy to fast? How many of you find it easy to fast? All right, good, you're all honest, amen. Well, my wife is. <laughs> she's doing, she's reading up all this stuff on fasting. She knows the health benefits of stuff like this. All right. So, in summary, our members are the natural ways that we live and act without really thinking. And I need not to, not to cut off my right hand because it thieves. I don't need to pull out my right eye because it lusts. I gotta get deeper. I gotta find out what's wrong with me and I gotta yank that out. Does that make sense? So, <clears throat> we talked about just the first thing, but he lists there and look there in three five, he says, mortify therefore your members and then he mentions what does he mention? Say him with me. Fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, <laughs> evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. So he's got five things here. Very unusual words. Now I have found, Bill, I found this. When the Bible uses words that I don't use, I don't need a new Bible. I need to study them. I need to find out what does evil concupiscence mean? I need to find out what is inordinate affection. It's called study. So <clears throat> when you come to these words, it will surprise you how kind of big they are. Let me catch up with myself here. Fornication basically is anything outside of any sex outside of marriage, including adultery, and that includes homosexuality. That's why, listen, there are sexual sins out there that we can't ever even think about mentioning. So God just puts a label saying fornication. Now I know some people say, well, fornication is sex before marriage. No. Fornication is any type of intimate relationship between a man and a woman outside of marriage. So he says, already before the, the, the floodgates of the internet have poured the filth of, of uh, pornography in almost every phone, he says, you've got to mortify uh, fornication, which means get rid of and deal with pornography, get deal uh, deal with uh, homosexuality, incest, and you're going to have to mortify it. That means this. Once you're saved, guess what? It's dead. You're going to have to believe it is dead since you are now dead in Christ. <clears throat> if lust and sexual sins and temptations are running around inside of your head, there is a power in four things that are available to every believer. I said this last last time, and I said, there's a power in the name of Jesus Christ. The devil does not like that name, uh, uh, the, the one name that the world has so trashed next to Donald Trump's. <laughs> I mean, all you have to do is sit in a sit in a cafeteria somewhere or sit in a, a restaurant and just, just ask somebody, what do you think of Donald Trump? And everybody wants to spit. But you talk about Jesus Christ, that's how people respond. Like, ooh, Jesus. Well, Listen, there's power in that name. That hatred of that name is demonic because there's power in that name. At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. So uh, that's why we pray in the name. There's power in the Holy Ghost that's in you. There's power in the blood of the Lamb of God. There's power in the truth of Scripture over feeling. And there is power in the fear of the Lord. So we talked about all those things last time about fornication. Well, we're going to continue with point number two here on uncleanness. What do you think that means? I mean, my mom taught me my fingernails were always unclean. <laughs> Go clean your fingernails. What does uncleanness mean? Somebody raise your hand. Yes? Good. That's very good. Um, like what 
it could be a thing that is impure. What do you mean by uh, something that is impure? What is impure? Okay, so is he saying that I need to get rid of unfiltered water? Okay, so there's pure water and impure water. What is he probably dealing with then? Thank you. Very good. So whenever the Bible uses the words unclean, it has two meanings. One of them is unhealthy. When a, when a person was diagnosed with leprosy, they had to announce, if ever anybody came near them, they had to cover their mouth in case they coughed, and they had to say, back off, I'm unclean. I'm unhealthy. I'm dangerous. I might infect you. But there's another meaning for the word unclean, and that is, it is impure, like what you're saying there. And um, uh, uh, let me find my thought here. It is basically anything that is dirty, or filthy in our thinking. Used to be, well, I, I, won't, I don't like going through a lot of things, but you know, when the Bible deals with this stuff, we have to deal with this stuff. So, uh, pictures that people keep around, acts that people keep doing, desires that people think are okay, and yet are soiling their thinking, they have to be, they have to be dealt with. That's why children used to be protected so they didn't see stuff on the television. Children used to be protected. They used to have what was called a, a watershed hour. What was it called? There was a time where stuff wasn't allowed to be shown on television. They didn't allow stuff to be talked about that is so vile now, talked on, on radio in the afternoons or any time now. They used, to, they used to worry about defiling children. Now they don't care about anything. Ever since Bill Clinton and his escapades, everything is in the newspaper. Every I saw that as a watershed moment that they could publish anything in the newspaper and get away with it now because the president had been found out. So unclean. But I'm going to be real simple. I'm going to say this. Uncleanness is when you're finding fault with other people. When you're finding, you're looking around and you criticizing other people, you are soiling not only you, but you're soiling your memory of them. You're, you're soiling you're defiling, you're tarnishing, you're making their your your thought of them from that moment on impure. Uncleanness is wrong. It is a sin. How about when you're listening to gossip and believing it? How about when you're watching acts that are dirty and wrong to see? And we all felt guilty doing that growing up. How about digging up old hurts and wounds and offenses and you're just reliving it and reliving it? That is unclean. And it needs to be mortified. What does that mean? To believe that the things that soil your thinking are dead now. And they need to be put behind you. They need to be forgotten. One of the greatest, greatest powers or abilities that Jesus Christ gives you when you get born again is the ability to forget. Now you will not totally forget but it'd be wonderful to get to where you just don't remember. You know what I'm saying? Things that happen to you. I mean, look, I know here's, here's Joe Soap and his father was brutal. His father was a, was a, a, a drunkard and his father beat, uh, his mom and his father beat him and his father, 
uh, treated him like dirt. And all his life growing up there, he carries that memory. He's defiled. He's unclean. He can't have a relationship with his own wife. He can't have a closeness with his own son because of, you know, there's wonderful, something wonderful when a person gets saved and God gives them the ability to let that go. And they don't remember it. And un- listen, man, <clears throat> I spent my days growing up, it's a shame today, most kids are inside playing on the Xbox, Y-Box, and Z-Box. But when I was a kid, I dug holes. I built forts. I climbed trees. I cut trees. <laughs> we won't go there. Um, uh, I I thought I could fly when I my mom bought me a, a, a Superman suit and I got up and I climbed up on the roof and I went jumping off the roof. No, the point is this: I got dirty. You know what? I don't remember the dirt. My mom did. You know, if you're constantly living in the dirt of your past, it's time for you to mortify the uncleanness of the past. I can look back at my life. And remember, if I have to, I will remember when my dad walked out of the house when I was 12 years old and he said, I have to go. I can remember that. But you know, when I look back on my past, I don't remember it. I remember dad being there. I remember him not being there. I remember going on holidays. We went very rare. I remember climbing, digging. I remember things, but I don't remember the dirt. Are you with me? And it's okay to get to that place. Too many people say, oh, we need to dig up all of that stuff. Maybe you do. But I hope one day when you finally dig it up that you realize that's a dead thing. Let's bury it and never look at it again. Amen? That's when he says, deal with uncleanness. Look at the third thing, the word inordinate affection. Who wants to take a shot at what that means? Nita. It can mean, and it is okay to actually say it's an unnatural affection. It just, <clears throat> inordinate means it's out of order. So it's what you're loving that you shouldn't love. <laughs> That's spot on. Uh, I wrote it this way. Inordinate affection is when you love things instead of people. When you're loving the wrong kind of things, like loving the earth instead of loving God. So, when you love things like yourself, when you love things like what you possess, or when you love things like money, and you have excessive affection towards it, where you're obsessed with things, that's called an inordinate amount of affection towards things. What's a Christian supposed to do? Somebody tell me, what is a Christian supposed to do? According to this verse, mortify it. Now, that means to believe it is... Wow, now some of you say, I don't have this problem. I bet you do. When you have a feeling, and this is, this is, this is so practical that we kind of are so familiar with it, we don't even deal with it. When you have a feeling, I'll give you an example. I think I can think of a, a good example without hurting anybody, not physically. <clears throat> but when somebody robs you of the glory, all right? Uh, I mean, here comes, here comes, uh, um, here comes Dean, and and he's getting ready to do his uh, uh, announcements there. And I said, Dean, I found somebody better to do the announcements tonight, and I just got him. You know, <laughs> inordinate affection would mean that he has a sense of, wait a minute, 
But you gave me that job. How dare you take that from me? And that, and he's, and it's, listen, it would be wrong for me to do that because we have an agreement that he's supposed to be doing it. My point is this. If I took it away from him, if I, if he, if I hurt him that way and he got angry at me and stormed out, I'm never going back to that church again. I don't like pastor. I never get. That means he has an inordinate amount of affection for himself. Are you with me? You say, oh, I don't have that problem. I bet you do. Because when somebody hurts you, or when somebody goes after something that is important to you, and they crush it, wow, you'll fight like a cat or a dog over food. Inordinate affection is, we, we don't know that we have an inordinate affection until God tries to take it away from us. You're saying, oh Lord, wait a minute, this, my job is good, my, my, my career is good, my car is good, my, my health is good, and you're taking it from me. Well, when you have an inordinate affection, it means you're loving that more than the will of God. Are you with me? It's very hard. These things are fundamental sins. They all deal with the heart. Paul says you're going to have to mortify. You're going to have to believe that they are dead. Now, um, evil concupiscence. Who wants to take that shot? Yep. Inordinate affection is pride. Inordinate affection is where, but it's not just pride. I'll summarize it in a moment, but it is the, the love of the wrong things, which includes yourself. That's pride. Go ahead. Yes. Evil concupiscence is a big word that boils down to our modern word of lust. And that is the love for somebody that doesn't belong to you. Yes, sir. It probably, it probably, it probably is. I like the word uncontrollable there is because when you mess with these things, they're like fire. And when you mess with any of these sins, fornication, you tell me, how can a man take fire in his, uh, in his bosom and he not be burned? Amen? Uh, you start messing with any one of these things and it's, it's out, it gets out of control too quick. You can't play with any of these sins. So I would say uncontrollable is an excellent word to throw into there. And understand it is, this is something that you have to have an external power. It's called the Holy Spirit to help you put them out. Because you can't let them, you can't let a fire burn in your house if it's not in the fireplace. Because it will slowly burn. You can't have fornication on your TV. You can't have uncleanness in your talk, your thoughts or in your talk. You can't have an inordinate affection in your marriage. Amen? You can't sit there and be in love with two women. Evil concupiscence is love. What was that word that you used? Uncon- it is love. It, well, let me just put. I don't like the word love in there. It's 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 used the word lust. It's it's lust, passion, desire. Um, uh, that is destructive. Was the other word that I was looking for? Um, for it's for sexual pleasure. By the way, that's not just a man thing today. I mean, folks, the lines have been blurred. Uh, evil concupiscence is, is just basically lust. Boils down to living for pleasure that you're seeking for yourself. It is no love in that. In any guy-girl relationship built down at the pub, built on lust, is destined for doom. Evil concupiscence. And what do you do with it? What do you do with it? Gonna have to, listen. I cannot crucify it. Christ crucified it on the cross. 
but I can mortify it, which means what? I can believe it's dead. At least I can do that. Amen? That's where we sit and we forget. We're going, God, why is this, why is this still plaguing me? Why do I still get attracted? Why do I still struggle with loving the wrong things? Why am, why am I still a mess? You know why? Because you don't believe that that stuff's dead. Now, um, let's go to the last one. And this is the most modern sin. And he uses the word covetousness and he says, which is what? Idolatry. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Real quick, Hebrews 13, verse 4 and 5. See the context of Hebrews 13 here. Hebrews 13, verse 4 and 5. Marriage is honorable. Well, thank God. Amen. There's no shame in getting married. Marriage is honorable in all, and the bed undefiled. But whoremongers and adulterers, three words, what is it? You better believe it. So, look at verse 5. Let your conversation be without... So what's your life like? What's your talk like? What's your thinking like? Do you constantly complain about what you don't have? Let your conversation be without covetous and be content with such husbands as ye have. As with the wife that you have, for Jesus has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. So here's the point. Here's the point. Covetousness is desperately wanting something you don't have. It is an intense demand for something to make you happy. That's what covetousness is. Covetousness is where you panic. You got, you, you got to have those, you got to have those new shoes. You got to have that, that new Range Rover or Land Rover or whatever it is that Eric's dreaming and drooling over. Um, and, 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 and Eric's a grouch until he can figure a way to go get that new Range Rover or whatever the thing's called. And, and listen, covetousness is where you, you can't be happy until you have that thing. Now that's our modern sin. Now it's a sin of the heart because who have we set up or what have we set up is more important than God. That thing, that thing we don't even have is more important than the God we do have. And so when you, when you're so focused on that thing, God's saying, he's like, he's like squeezed out of our life and he's saying, boy, you got an idol in there. And I, Jesus, and God says, I, hate idols. Are you content with your husband? You know, when you're friendly and a blessing to anyone more than you are to your husband, you better be careful because your husband's going to look at it and go, who am I? You content with your wife? I mean, we have these ways of, of uh, looking at everybody else and everybody else on Facebook and everybody else is happy and you're You've got nothing. Uh, you ought to burn Facebook if you can't be happy. Because if you're constantly comparing yourself among yourselves and looking at so-and-so, she has such a nice husband. Oh, he's so kind. Oh, I'm telling you, I wish I had one like that. That's evil. It's pure evil. Are you content with your face? You look at that and go, I wish I had a better nose. I wish I had higher eyes, eyebrows. I wish, I wish my ears weren't so big. I used to pray. I used to sit in front of the mirror going, why do I look like Dumbo? Um, 
You know, when I got saved, Brother Dave, I'm telling you, Texas Christians are the worst <clears throat> because the only way they ever tell you they love you is when they make fun of you. And I had so, when I got saved, I'm going to church, everybody called me Skinny Craig. Skinny Craig. <clears throat> I'm like Skinny Craig. And I'm like, would you leave me alone? I was in, I was one time, I actually went up to uh, Missouri in my church and I was in the back and I was an usher. And so we're back there and, and my pastor at that day is named Jim Collins. Jim Collins says, Brother Ledbetter. No, we actually came up and we clicked in the offering. We came up there. He says, Brother Ledbetter, turn your head to the side. And I turn my head to the side. He said, now stick out your tongue. And he said, didn't I tell you you look like a zipper? <laughs> you know, I hated how skinny I was. Now my wife's fixed that. Okay, good food. But I hated myself. Now, the truth is this. There came a day where I finally looked in the mirror and I went, I'm okay. I can lose a few pounds. 10, 15. <laughs> I know, but I'm not upset about it. I'm not obsessed with it. I mean, I look in the mirror and I go, that's me. I don't look and go, oh, look, there's a new wrinkle. Oh, no. <laughs> Covetousness. I don't want to be anybody else than who I am in his eyes. I don't need to have anything else than what God gives me. Amen? Now, I work. I plan. I know what I need. I try to get it. But if I can't get it, I move on. Amen? You say, well, that's a man thing. It's a Christian thing. You read it there. That beware of covetousness. Um, are you content with your abilities? Or do you complain because you don't have some talent? We're commanded to be content. So whenever there is a, a frustration, well, I'm just not smart. Well, I just don't, I don't even have a car. I think of Rodell. Rodell every single day gets up, reads his Bible, gets out the door before 6 a.m. and walks down to the piggery, to the, to the meat factory down there by the, by the office. And he gets down there. What time are you going to be down there? Half six or something? Okay, as late as 7 o'clock, think of that. And he walks. Next time you get in your car going, oh, I have to drive a 2014. Covetousness. Covetousness. you got to mortify that. Next time you just start comparing yourself, I see, oh, there's another 181. Oh, there's another 181. Don't look at it. Don't look at it. Mortify it. I don't need that, do you? I don't need a thing. You know what? If God took everything away from me, I'll still be okay. Job taught us that, didn't he? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, all these things are sins of the heart. They're internal sins. Sins that probably nobody else may know the extent of. But let me go through this thing. Simple meanings. Fornication means all sex outside of marriage. Uncleanness is unclean thoughts and desires. Inordinate affection is loving things. Instead of things, instead of people, and instead of God. Evil concupiscence is lust. Covetousness is an intense demand for something to make you happy. Now that's the summary of it all. <clears throat> I know you would probably say with me that we wish we had none of that in us. But they're there. But I can determine whether they have control or not, and I can determine whether I believe they're alive or not, just like if I saw 
what uh, the eyes of a dead um, uh, bear rug on the floor, and I just I determined, oh, <laughs> my heart stopped, but he's not going to attack me. He's dead. He's dead. And my life is hid with, with Christ. So, there are priority things you must defeat, Paul says, before we go any further. Let me say this. I don't want to forget it. You may want to defeat depression in your life. You may want to defeat the anger that wells up. You may want to defeat discouragement, but that's not where you start. You're going to have to conquer these and mortify them and believe them to have been crucified at the cross. Did you know fornication will keep you enslaved to your flesh? Uncleanness will keep you enslaved to the way you think. Inordinate affection will, be, will make you to where you're enslaved to what you have. Evil concupiscence will make you enslaved to your lusts, and covetousness will keep you enslaved to what you lack. That's not the way a Christian lives, is it? And a Christian has to look at their life and go, that's not me anymore. Amen? If you're, if you're here, or here, or here, or here, or all of those together, it doesn't matter, then you're not, then you're not free. And what does the Bible say? If any man be in Christ, he is a new creature, John chapter 8 says, uh, whom therefore the Son shall make free is free. Indeed, I might have to believe that. I am free from the enslavement. Am I free from the temptation, yes or no? No, I'm not free from the temptation. But I am free from the enslavement. Does that make sense? And the way I keep it from enslaving me is when something comes up from the past or from life or from friends, or from the devil himself. I say, you're dead. And I gotta get used to that. I gotta get used to reminding myself and sometimes reminding the devil. You know, I read in the Bible, David loved reminding God. Did you ever notice that? Lord, remember the covenant you made with your people. He would remind God as if God needed to be reminded. But I think more than that, he was reminding himself of, you know, God, I'm remembering the covenant you made. And I'm trusting you're going to keep your sight, so on and so forth. Okay, so. Uh, oh, I want to say this. Remind yourself how you mortify these things. How do you, somebody tell me. I keep going over and over, but I want to make sure you understand. How do you mortify lust when you're struggling with wandering eyes? How do you mortify that? Come on, number one, you ought to instantly remember what we said. You believe it is dead. That's the most, if you start to believe it is dead, it has no power, just like that rug. It cannot hurt you if you don't believe it. Fear is very powerful, isn't it? And your fear of sin is still the grip of the devil. You're going to have to, and most of us have been tricked by the devil and he comes along and he convinces you you're powerless against me. You have to go, I know I'm powerless, but I'm not alone in this battle anymore. Okay? So you remind yourself. Then I just say this. You need to have a good burial service. What does that mean? You need to take that memory and you need to just somewhere in some bin in the back of your head, in the back of your heart, says that's where all the dead things go. I'll give you an example. Uh, Rodell, you like cats? Thank God. Amen. But say... Adelina brings home a cat. Oh. <laughs> and 
and she just oh loves this cat and feeds the cat and keeps the cat. And you're there, I wish that cat would die. And then the cat dies. Oh, yeah, come on. Oh, the cat dies. Okay. You'd be the happiest man alive. But Adelina says, I want to keep the cat. You know what you need to do with the cat that's dead? Take it away and bury it. Now, she may miss the cat. Now, I'm talking about her like your flesh, all right? <laughs> she may miss the cat. She may want the cat back. The cat, but the cat's dead. And you have to take charge and say, sweetheart, we can't keep this dead thing. If we keep this dead thing around, it's going to attract more problems. we got to bury it. And that's how you have to see your sin. As long as you keep your thoughts, as long as you keep your memories, as long as you keep your your failures constantly fresh in your mind, you're keeping a dead cat around. Your flesh will miss that sin. Are you with me? Your flesh will want to go and, and toy with that stuff. But you have to somehow say, i got to get this thing out. i got to bury it. Okay, so... <clears throat> uh, we have good motivation for doing these things. You know what the good motivation is? The next verse, verse 6. All of those things make God very angry in the life of a Christian. Chapter 3 and verse 6. He says, for which, for which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. You know, if anything ought to motivate you so that you deal with sin in your life after you're saved, it ought to be you know God deals with sin. What did it say in Hebrews 13.5? It says, marriage is honorable and all, and the bed undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. And that ought to strike an eye. You know, the holiness of God is a good truth. It's a good thing to be reminded of. So, no Christian ever gets away with playing with those sins. You try and clean around, play, uh, mess around as a Christian with fornication or unclean thoughts or uh, uh, loving things. And I see them. The most unhappy people are the people who are living for this world and they're saved. This doesn't work. Um, no Christian ever gets away with, with playing with any of those sins. Yes, we walked, we lived in those sins and un, as unsaved Gentiles. But it ought to be said, not anymore. What is 1 Corinthians chapter 6? One of the most blessed words in the entire New Testament is, but such were some of you. You used to be dominated by those sins up there. But not anymore. You're washed. You're sanctified. You're justified. Okay, so the Christian doesn't, doesn't go back to the pub. Amen. The Christian doesn't toy with sin, doesn't play with anything like that. A sign that you're saved is the fact that you don't live in those sins anymore. Not that you don't sin, but that you don't play with those sins. And you don't think that you... And one one of the best kind of churches and, and the best kind of people to be around are the ones who are real and can share experience. And you say, you know what? After I got saved, I kept drinking. And I tell you what? It destroyed my mind. It destroyed my life. And God had to deal with me. And God had to to um, uh, convince me and convict me that it was such a wicked sin for me to carry on with that thing. And they give you their testimony. And the other Christians go, wow. And they learn from it. A lot of churches never, ever talk about sin anymore. You ever notice that? And 
when you have a church full of people who are saying, I think I got the victory, I want the victory. We don't have a church. I pray you never, ever see us ever have an attitude of, we don't have a struggle. No, but we have a victory. There's a difference in the way that we see sin, and that is we've got to have a victory over it. And one of the a sign that you're saved is the fact that you don't live in those sins anymore. Not that you never get tempted, but that, man, it just doesn't define you anymore. You're going to fall. You're going to mess up. You're going to, and, and you may even fall into the same sins of the past, but it will be a fall, not a defeat. Amen. So we need to do five things with every sin that creeps back in our life, and I'm finished. This is where I wanted to get. Okay? Number one. We need to examine and judge ourselves before God has to do it. Go to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30. 1 Corinthians eleven thirty. speaking of the, uh, the Remembrance Supper there, Paul talks to the Corinthians and he's rebuking them. And he says, for this cause... Many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. What's that, the, what's, that a, what's that a code word for? Death. A Christian's death is not terrible. It's just like falling asleep. But here, these Christians had died early. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. When we are judged, we are only chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. What's my point? You need to do five things to every sin that creeps back, creeps back into your life. Number one, you need to examine and judge yourself before God has to do it. Amen. You do not need your pastor coming and checking on you, making sure you're not sinning. <laughs> you need to check up on yourself and make sure you're not sinning. Because when the pastor's call, it's just before God's going to call in, believe me. Or when the police will. You know, isn't that awful? I, I couldn't be a police officer. The kind of stuff that that guy ha- or male or female has to deal with going into houses, dealing with such sin, such flawed human nature. You know, wouldn't it be better for a Christian to be able to say, you know, I'm mortified that thing. I was freed from it the moment I got saved, and I finally believed it two years later. Amen. That's how it works. Now, there are some people, the moment they get saved, they put down the cigarettes and they pick it up. You know why they did that? Because they believed they were free. Amen? So, first thing you need to do is examine and judge yourself. Secondly, you need to, uh, you need to allow the Holy Spirit and maybe somebody else to expose sin in you. Go to 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9. Familiar scripture. You know these scriptures. Verse 8 says this, if we say that we have no sin, who are we deceiving? We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So if I've examined my own heart, and it's pretty hard to do, because what will my heart tell me? Oh, we're fine, Ledbetter. Oh, everything's great. Peachy king. Right. No, examine yourself. I mean, the Bible tells me I need to do it. That means I can do it where I'm honest. If I need help, you've got Christian brothers and sisters who you could sit down with and say, Brother Dan, can we have a chat? Can you tell me what's wrong with me? Can you tell me why I'm in defeat, why I can't put down the cigarettes, why I'm in here? 
And then Brother Dan or some other mature Christian may be able to say, let me ask you, is there a deeper sin in your life? You need a, you need a, an, what they call an accountability partner. You need somebody you can talk to who can talk straight to you. Now, it ought to be your wife. It ought to be your husband. It ought to be your parents. But there comes a time where you need somebody to help expose sin because if you don't bring it up or if somebody doesn't help you bring it up, God's going to bring it up. And if he has to expose you, he'll expose you to everybody. I don't think you want to be there, do you? Third, mortify those sins. Put them in the dealt with bin. I I dealt with that thing. I tell you, there's nothing more thrilling about being a Christian as having victory over sin. I don't want to be rich. I don't want to be famous. I don't want to be successful. I want to be free. I want to walk through life without a a skeleton closet. I want to go through life without the shame that builds up because I can't tell anybody what I'm struggling with. Are you with me? A Christian can't live that way without being destroyed. So, at some point, you need to tell somebody. Talk to somebody. They talk about, talk to counselors. Talk to your pastor. He's a good counselor. He may just look at you and go, I have no idea what to do, but let's pray. But get it to the place where you say, I believe it is dead now. I believe my, my, my addiction. I believe my bad habit. I believe my lust is dead. Fourthly, divorce yourself from, go to, look back there in Colossians 3. We were there. Colossians 3, verse 8. Ephesians uses the word put away from you. That put away is the word for divorce. But here in Colossians 3, verse 8, it says, put off. Verse 8 says, but now ye also, you need to put off all these. So, to put off, you have a, you have an old fling, an old Girlfriend, and that girlfriend comes up in your life later on. You're married three years, five years, ten years, or whatever, and that girlfriend calls you. What do you do? You don't answer. Amen? You put her off. If she shows up at your door, you say, I don't, I don't want to see you. And there, there, there is just something. What do I say, Brother Dean? Except, We have to hate sin enough that we're willing to say, I don't want you in my life anymore. That's what divorce is. That's a terrible way to compare it. But to put off is actually put distance between you when you used to be so close. Are you with me? And you're going to have to put some distance between you so you can move on. Fifthly, you've got to replace them with better loves. Too many people have tried to stop sinning and they fail because they never replaced specific sins with things that are better. You know, I think of I think of a lot of things. If you've got struggle, you know, uh, I'll just list some of these things. You need to replace all the things that are going to destroy you with some things that are going to build you, like getting married, like clean, wholesome thoughts and a clear conscience. If you got stuff going on inside your head that just is filthy and wrong, put some good thoughts in there. I mean, the Bible's full of good thoughts. Meditate and memorize on the Bible. Think about good things. Don't read the news. 
we were making fun of Elizabeth Bartlett back there, and uh, we were talking about what was it that I said that was in the news or something, and you went, really? I said, yeah, and JFK died, and he was shot, you know, and so we just went back, and she hadn't watched the news in a long time. She's unhappy. She's a happy woman. If there's a lot of stuff going on inside and you're struggling with, turn off the news and put some good stuff in there. Think about those things. Decide to enjoy right loves and affections. Maybe you do need a cat or a dog to enjoy. If there's just grouchiness in the home, get something that you just find yourself being able to find loving. Now, if you got a wife, don't get a cat to replace the wife. Get, keep the wife. Enjoy some right loves, like loving soul winning. Love people, man. I mean, it ought to be the greatest testimony of this church that when some visitor comes to this church, you just sense that everybody loves one another. Amen. You have to choose that. It doesn't happen naturally. Fill your heart and mind with selfish love toward others. You know what lust is? Love of me, my pleasure, and what I want. You know what kind of love a Christian has? Charity. I don't care if I get anything. I just want to be a blessing. Replace all of those sins with things that are better. Then just decide to be absolutely content. You ever just sat somewhere and just gone, ah, it's better than I deserve. Thank you. If I got nothing else, I got more than I should have. Amen. Doesn't matter where you're at, you ought to be able to say thank you. So you're going to, so examine and judge yourself. Look in there. If you can't see anything wrong, ask your wife. <laughs> Is there anything wrong? Am I, am I doing okay? She says, no, you're not. Let's go over the list. <laughs> then as she exposes sins that you think aren't there, bring them before God and say, Lord, if I'm saved, the Bible says that my sins were paid for. They're, they're, they're crucified. We already read that in Colossians. They're crucified. Therefore, I can't crucify them again but I can mortify them. I can believe they're dead. And then when they show up, I ignore them. And I say, oh, you're dead. No, you're dead. You're, you're dead. Double dead. Dead, dead, dead. And I got to make sure that I replace them with something better. That's why you have church on Sunday night. That's why you have church again on Wednesday night. Why? Because we're trying to replace the pub. Because we're trying to replace the stupid idiot box that spend, people spend 27 hours a week in front of. That's why we try to replace all the bad friends with some good friends. Amen? Because you have to replace those things that are pulling you down, destroying you with the good things. Alright. I want to say this. Romans 8.13 says you can only mortify the flesh through the Spirit. I'm just going to say this real quick and we got to go. He is the enabling force against your fleshly desires and your old nature. Your flesh can't fight against itself. Amen? This hand cannot gouge, not unless you're on meth crystals and other stuff. This hand cannot cut that other hand. I'm sorry. Myself is not going to fight against its own nature. I have the Holy Spirit to help me do that. All other helps, drugs, counseling, none of them will help me. They'll only take this pills, uh, uh, go on this holiday, um, uh, get rid of the kids for the weekend, all of them will only mask the deeper problem. You understand? You know what you need? You need time with the Holy Spirit of God. You need to learn how to yield to the Spirit of God. You need to know how to be filled with the Spirit of God. Because unless you learn to walk in the Spirit of God, you will always be conquered by the flesh. 
The mortified life is also called the Christian life, and I'll talk about that next week. Any questions? Any questions? I just wanted to really nail this thing, Brother Dan. Could a person covet good things? Yes, of course. Generally, the word covet is a negative word. But yes, covet the best gifts we're told to intensely need and desire the gifts of God because they are for us. So you're exactly right. Anybody else? Yes, sir. Amen. If we took that seriously, it would really fix a lot of our life because most of my sins start in my heart but then are okayed by my mind. And when I've got my heart feeling one way or wanting something and my mind saying, no, that thing's wrong, then I'm in control and I yield to the Holy Spirit to tell me what is right or wrong. And then I say, I better quickly get to church or I better quickly open my Bible or I better quickly get on the side of my bed or I better quickly turn off this TV. And the mind makes a decision to mortify that thing and replace it with something that's good. Excellent. Anybody else? This is probably one of the 10 top most fundamental messages any Christian should learn, and that is how to mortify the flesh. Somebody tell me, before we finish, what does mortify mean in simple terms? It means leaving a sin is dead in us. Now, that sounds easy. It's not. I give you a lot of thoughts over the last two weeks. But if, 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 if you're a Bible believer, you're going to have to take it seriously and go, all right, all right. You know, all I had to do was believe in the death, burial, resurrection, and it changed my destiny. And if he saved me from sin, that's what his name means, for he shall save his people from their sin. Well, if he saved me from my sin, why don't I believe it? Why don't I believe it? It's like a kid who's been adopted into a family, used to live on the street, used to have to fight over bread and, and trying to get food and trying to find a place to sleep at night. And now he's been adopted into a wealthy family. He's given his own bed and his own pillow, sat down with food in front of him. And that kid is still pocket piling all the food into his pockets. And he's still worried about where he's going to sleep. And the parents say, you can believe that this is your home now. You don't have to fight anymore. You don't have to struggle anymore. You don't have to worry whether anybody's going to hurt you anymore because we love you. You just need to believe it. And that orphan boy grows up when he finally believes, I'm home. And that's what a Christian can do. Father, we bow before you, thanking you for great truth tonight about dealing with sin in our lives. We haven't even dealt with the real things that that, that we, we struggle with, like anger and like wrath and like um, uh, um, the depression and and discouragement and and um, just the other sins that that really plague us and thievery even and even dealt with how we're going to put those things off. And that's because we've never looked in our own hearts and saying, "What is my heart being allowed to still love?" If my affection is supposed to be on things above, and it's not, instead it's on things, and it's on pleasure. And it's on, on self. I'm never going to get victory over anger, wrath, and frustration. I'm never going to get victory over any of the sins that everybody sees until I get rid of the sins that are hidden and invisible. So Lord, right now, help us take a moment and say, Lord, help me be honest. Help me be honest 
If I've got a problem with what I say about people, that's because I have unclean thoughts about them. If I have a problem with how my eyes look at women, it's because there's something wrong in my heart. I don't know what love is. I only know what lust is. And I, I'm free from that, and yet I'm still carrying that in my life. God, I, I, I know you crucified it, but I need to believe it. Help me, and every Christian in this room, take deep examination of the real root behind our sins. And that's what you've taught us tonight from your word. So that we can truly walk in the newness of life. Instead of in the oldness of that old life that was just so weighed down with guilt and shame and sin and defeat. So Lord, I pray people never forget this message. They'd be able to, battle by battle, be able to say, I'm going to mortify that thing if it's the last thing I do. I'm going to put it behind me. I'm going to know and believe it's dead. Because Jesus crucified it. And he did a good job of it. In Jesus' name, amen.